Today's scripture reading is taken from Genesis chapter 49. Uh, I'll be reading from the English version, the English Standard Version, sorry. Uh, you may like to refer to the hard copy Bible. It looks something like this. On the pew in front of your seats, the passage for this morning uh, is on page 39. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their sword. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And in their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cup. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The, sh Sorry. the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foe to the vine and his donkeys caught to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zubalan shall dwell in the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the ship foes. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder, to Sorry. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Then shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Then shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. I wait for you. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad. But he shall raid at their heels. Ashes food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches runs over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings from the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounty of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and in the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable for him. This is God's word. Last words are lasting words. You heard that saying before. We say it to mean that a person's last words can be memorable to us, they can be inspiring. Uh, Movie makers love uh, last words, so so Braveheart, William Wallace character, yelling freedom with his last breath that makes a dramatic scene, even though it's poetic license historically. Uh, but some famous historical figures have had last words that, that carry on down to today. So Martin Luther's lifetime of preaching about a gospel of grace rather than works, captured in a, a slip of paper in his hand, found after he had died. A slip of paper just said, we are beggars. This is true. Sometimes last words give us insight into a person's inner thoughts, what makes them tick, so to speak. So... Leonardo da Vinci, maybe the greatest painter, one of, that ever lived, uh, his last words were reportedly these, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have, as if the Mona Lisa could be improved upon. Karl Marx's last words certainly give us some insight into that man, his uh, housekeeper, He was dying, asked him if he had any last words, and he said gruffly, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. We can find some humorous last words in history. So during the U.S. Civil War, there was a Union general, John Sedgwick, who said this about the Confederate sharpshooters who were about 1,000 yards off. He said, they couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. Those were his last words. In our study of Genesis, we are in the final chapters of this great book, and and here we come to the last words of Jacob, the third and final patriarch of the faith. We saw him a few weeks ago as an aged man standing before Pharaoh. He needed help to stand up, and in, in his weakness, both physically and representing a people that were starving and needed the help of the the great and mighty Pharaoh, uh, he stood and blessed Pharaoh, a powerful statement that God's salvation comes through weakness, not through strength. Last week, Tian Chai gathered up the lessons of chapter 48, spoke to us about how to finish well, clinging to God's promises acknowledging his grace and faithfulness in our lives and submitting to his sovereign ways. Well, here in chapter 49, 
these fascinating final words of Jacob are spoken to his 12 sons gathered around him. We feel at this point like he's been dying for quite a few chapters, but we're in the final words here. Chapter 50, the next chapter, as Eugene preaches to us next Sunday, we'll wrap it up. But these, these words are in the form of a poem. You, you may see that in your, your Bible. They try to mark off poetry with a, a different uh, type there or, or organization. Um, and this poem moves through all 12 of the sons doing two things at once, looking back on their life, so things that are true of these boys and the way that they have lived, and then also speaking prophetically of the future, what's going to be true in Israel and each of these tribes. Uh, Taken for us, I think that they're meant as an exhortation for us on how we're supposed to live in between promise and fulfillment. I mean, that's what Genesis has been putting before us again and again is these promises of God that are, that are supposed to guide how you live, and yet the fulfillment of those promises are off in the future. So, so how do you and I live in a fallen world? With great hope and yet, yet with great pain. Well, the main idea of our passage, I think, can be summarized in three truths. You may want to write these down so you can talk about them with, with somebody over lunch today. How should you and I live? Three truths. We should live like, number one, sin will have its consequences. Sin will have its consequences. Number two, faithfulness will have its reward. Faithfulness will have its reward. And then third and finally, the king will have his praise. The king will have his praise. Sin will have its consequences. Faithfulness will have its reward. And the king will have his praise. It's my prayer that our study will help you to turn from sin to faithful service of the coming king. So let's dive into Genesis 49 and think first about sin will have its consequences. Uh, let me get, give you a bit, bit of a flyover. Uh, as I said, we're going to move through all 12 of the the sons of Jacob, or that's, that's what the chapter does. Uh, we have an introduction there in verse 1. Jacob calls his sons and says, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So, so that little intro there kind of cues us into the prophetic element. He's going to speak about what's going to happen in, in their sons and their sons' sons and all the descendants in the nation of Israel. But then in verse 28, if you look at the the final verse that was read, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So so these future prophetic words are going to be tied to the character of the son. It's what is suitable to them. So we're looking both backwards and forwards. And you'll notice uh, that some of the sons get more airtime, they get more words, more press than the rest. So, so five of the sons in particular that we're going to look at get, get a, a significant amount said about them. And then the other seven, uh, it's very brief. Maybe something about where they're going to live, something about what will be the, the, the commercial interests of that son, maybe comparing that son's character to an animal, but very brief. Uh, in particular, Judah and Joseph. You look at Judah, verse 8 down to verse 12, 
And then Joseph, verse 22 down to verse 26, those two get 40% of the whole. So we're meant to see them as the most significant uh, in many ways. Uh, the last thing to say, just in terms of a, a flyover view here, uh, is that the, the order is significant. So you, you remember Jacob did not set out to have children with four different women, uh, but he did, right? He wanted to marry Rachel. Uh, he was tricked by his uncle Laban into marrying Leah first, and then Leah and Rachel, in their desire to have children, uh, give to Jacob their, their, maid, their maids, basically, to, as surrogate mothers. And, and that's the order that we move through. We have Leah, the first six sons, and then the four children of the, the two maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, and then finally Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. All right, well, diving into the first son here, Reuben, the, the first thing that's going to strike us is that some of these blessings don't sound very much like blessings, right? And, and we'll think about what's going on there, but look at Reuben, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. It's a good start. Then verse 4, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben committed sexual immorality with Bilhah, Rachel's maid, after Rachel died. This was narrated very briefly in Genesis 35. And surprisingly, there was no comment from Jacob at the time. It was a startling presumption on Reuben's part, taking to him what didn't belong to him. And you wonder if Reuben thought that he got away with it. That's the way sin works, by the way. Sin promises you something that you eagerly desire, but it hides the cost of that sin. The cost is high for Reuben here, isn't it? The firstborn should be preeminent in dignity. The firstborn should also have a double portion of the inheritance. You, you know, that double portion actually goes to Joseph and the two sons, the two tribes that come from Joseph. Reuben forfeited it. It was stripped away from him. His inability to be pure sexually was a sign of his instability as a person. I think that's what it means there when it says unstable as water. It means that his character is unstable. It's not reliable. And we can feel something of Jacob's anger in the final words there. He went up to my couch, my bed. You know, when we reflect on, on sexuality and the culture that we're in right now, I, I think we should see something of the insanity that's going on around us. Because on the one hand, in, in the, the movies that are put out and the advertisements and the, and the fashion that we see around us, the, the message is consi consistently, sex is no big deal. And it's almost viewed as quaint and somewhat prudish to insinuate otherwise. Well, why make such a big deal about sexuality? And then on the other hand, we're constantly being presented with the problems that come from sexual addiction, from exploitation, and just from the, the general dissatisfaction that's out there in society. So, so which is it? It doesn't matter very much or it matters a great deal. Well, Christians are the ones who, because we understand the created purpose of sex, 
should be able to speak a better word to the culture and certainly live a better word ourselves. Sex is a good gift of God, meant to be enjoyed in the context that he created it for. He actually intends it to be a powerful testimony of the gospel. That's what, that's what Ephesians chapter 5 says as we read almost every wedding, that God created marriage and And sex points to this as a display of Christ's love for the church. And so when we are those who preserve its sacred meaning, keep it in its sacred context, I think we speak a powerful word to the culture. Whether you're single or married, whether you're young or old, look at Reuben's example and see how much sexuality matters to God. Let it strengthen your resolve to honor God with your body, with your mind. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith when you realize that you have sinned. So don't be like Reuben, assuming that his sin would never find him out. He's meant as a warning to us against sexual sin. But let's look at the next two sons because they are likewise meant as a warning to us. Simeon and Levi here in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. All right, this text also looks backward, right? So, so Genesis 34, which, which Brian Tan preached to us a number of weeks ago, talks about the, the massacre at Shechem. Uh, remember, Simeon and Levi are enraged by the rape of their sister Dinah. Uh, they use deception, even using the sacred rite of, of circumcision to trick the men of Shechem and then to kill them all. And you may remember in the close of that chapter, Jacob does rebuke them but they don't receive their father's rebuke. They they speak right back to him and say, what, should we have let them treat our sister like a prostitute? Simeon and Levi are convinced of the rightness of their anger. Uh, They've become convinced somehow that they, they rightly are judge and jury and executioner in their anger. And they're sorely mistaken Anyway, they're meant for us as uh, an opportunity to look at our own lives and think about our own anger. Do do you have an anger problem? No, Mark, I'm I'm a nice guy if you get to know me. Uh, I really like a a book by David Paulison called Good and Angry. Highly recommend it to you. It's a great meditation on what the Bible says about anger. Uh, I recommend chapter two to you in particular. It's entitled, Do you have a serious problem with anger? Let me read you the entire chapter. Yes. That's it, chapter two. He goes on in chapter three to to talk about why we're so often deceived about that fact. We're so often deceived because when we're living life in a fallen world, we do get sinned against and we do run into injustice. and, And on some level, we just know that That anger is a right response to that which is wrong. It it means that something matters when you get angry about it. And we can point in the Bible and say, well, God gets angry, right? It it says he's slow to anger, but he does get angry. And it's an enduring part of God's character. His, His wrath against 
sin is an evidence of his, his settled opposition to that which is wrong. Well, what's the problem? The problem is that you and I are not holy like God. And so inevitably, our, our view of anger and, and, and how it should be displayed and what should be done with it overflows the banks of what is good and right. It always does. That's why in the book of James, where he says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because man's anger does not bring about the kind of righteous life that God requires. That's why Paul says in his uh, book to the Ephesians that we shouldn't let, our, let the sun go down on our anger. When you feel angry with someone, you should take it upon yourself to resolve that situation as quickly as possible. You should view anger, anger as like, like a, uh, an acid or something. It can't be held in a cup without corroding it. If you try to hold it in yourself, it will corrode you. Later on in that same chapter, Paul will say, just, just flat out, get rid of anger. Get rid of all bitterness and anger and rage and slander along with every form of malice. You say, well, Paul, how do I do that? How do I get rid of my anger? Well, in the next verse, he says, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. There's the key, friend. When you realize that God was rightly angry with you because of your sin, but in his compassion made a way of forgiveness for you through Christ, then you realize, ah, I can't remain angry at someone else. I'm going to have to forgive them from the heart. I'm new here, which has certain advantages. So in what I'm about to say, you can assume that I don't really know much and I haven't really been around. I'm going to play that card for a while, by the way. But in a church this size, I just have to assume that there is a lot of unresolved anger among us. There may be someone that when you think about them, you kind of have a physical reaction. It may be anger that's been there for, for months, for years, or even decades. Beloved, it doesn't have a place among God's people. It's incredibly important that you not let anger become resentment and bitterness, resolve it in your own heart. Let, let the gospel start to, to let it fade away. It's essential if we're going to live together as a church in a way that honors the Lord. We can protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Simeon and Levi likewise are a warning to us. Together with Reuben, they tell us this truth. Sin will have its consequences. We're to heed the warning. Sin may be fun for a season, but it's a short season. A day of reckoning comes. Now, one question we didn't answer so far is how are these blessings? <laughs> Verse 28 said each of the sons gets a blessing, and here we are. This doesn't sound like a blessing to me. And the word cursing is actually used there, right? I think the answer to that problem is that they aren't blessings per se on those three sons and their tribe. But they are a blessing to Israel. How? Well, what happens if Reuben, the firstborn, the leader, is sexually immoral and allowed to lead? 
What happens if Simeon and Levi, in their rage and anger, are allowed to become preeminent in Israel? Well, it'll be, it'll be cursing for the whole nation. So it's a, a sobering warning and reminder that the removal of an ungodly leader is a blessing to God's people. Those of us in positions of spiritual leadership need to heed that warning. We need to make sure that we are leading in a way that honors God and blesses his people. Otherwise, we are disqualified and rightly removed. So sin will have its consequences. Let's consider, secondly, faithfulness will have its reward. Faithfulness will have its reward. And for this, I want to skip down to verse 22 and take a a look at Joseph. Uh, which we've been doing for many weeks, but, but let's look at these, these last words spoken over Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Now, we're not surprised that that Joseph gets praise here, right? Since chapter 37, we've been following this man through trials and tribulations. We've been watching how suffering produced in him a a humility, an ability to trust God rather than his own strength. What's the result here? Well, we're told that he's a fruitful bough. A a bough is a branch of a tree, a a tree here by a spring. So, So a tree planted by a spring of water, it reminds us of Psalm 1 where the The man whose delight is in the law of the Lord is like a a tree planted by streams of water bearing its fruit in season. His branches running over the wall probably pictures the way uh, a tree planted next to a wall. It's a fruitful tree kind of sending branches in all directions. It can just kind of consume a wall. Uh, I think that image together with what is said about the blessings of the breasts and of the womb is, is clearly pointing to the fact that Joseph is going to be fruitful in terms of his progeny, his offspring, his descendants. And it's actually amazing to follow in the history of Israel. You know, his, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, become by far the most numerous in Israel. And actually later in the uh, Old Testament, Ephraim is shorthand for the entire northern kingdom because they are so numerous. I think it's a reminder that we should take whenever we run into this in the Old Testament that, uh, you know, in this age where children are are at best viewed as expensive and and at worst as an extreme nuisance that keep you from all that you want to do, I just got to point out that in the Old Testament, children are the quintessential blessing. I'm not going to do much with family planning here, but I'll just leave it right there. But the context of this great blessing on Joseph is is brought out there in verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. 
Uh, this is interesting poetic imagery because archers, they're, they're often viewed as, as not valiant soldiers, right? Because what do they do? They just stand behind the line and kind of shoot at, at the enemy from afar. Well, that's how Jacob sums up Joseph's life. Uh, people just taking shots at him from afar, trying to arrow him. Uh, we think about his brothers seeing him from afar. Remember, he had no idea that they were plotting against him. Think about Potiphar's wife after her advances are scorned. She has a conversation with her husband from the safety of her powerful position. As a result, he's thrown in prison. And then we ought to assume that in his years of civil service, you know, Joseph is immediately promoted to the top. Well, how would the rest of the hierarchy have felt about that? I assume in all of his administration of Egypt, he regularly had people taking shots at him. Maybe some of you can relate in the civil service to what this is like. Well, how does Joseph survive these attacks? Look at verse 24. It says, his bow remained unmoved. It means he was enabled to stand his ground. His arms were made agile. It means he was able to parry and to respond appropriately in battle. But then all the emphasis gets put on God, not on him. Did you notice that? His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. It almost, the image there is almost the, the way a parent might put their hands on the hands of a child to, to drive a little car or to swing a bat or something like that. And then Jacob just piles on the descriptions of his God, of the God who enabled Joseph, the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, meaning the defender. The stone of Israel, that, that either points to the, the solidity of God or perhaps more likely the, the stone in the sling like, like David firing at Goliath. Anyway, and then the God of your father who will help you by the Almighty. Five different references to God there. So how did Joseph endure? How did he triumph? Why was he blessed? Well, he did it with God's help. His part was just the humility that had taught him to trust God. You know, when we say faithfulness will have its reward, what we mean is that you and I will likewise be attacked by enemies. Maybe not in quite the same way as Joseph, but, but we have enemies arrayed against us. We speak often of what we see in the, the New Testament, the world, the flesh, our own sinful nature, and Satan all attack the believer. They are all enemies. And then just the trials and tribulations of life that come against us. We, we can feel shot at from afar. Think about the fiery darts of the evil one that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. So when trials and tribulations come your way and you trust in God, not your own skill, not your own money, not your own resume. You, you, don't, you don't turn to your resources. You turn first to God. You, you're a person who habitually, when you meet some challenge, you go to pray. God, I need your help. God, I don't know what to do. God, I'm relying on you. When that becomes who you are, then you can expect God to reward you. That's, after all, what faith brings. What, what, what does it say in Hebrews 11? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Because he who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he's there, and that he rewards those who, who diligently seek him. I'm not saying exactly what form that reward will take. I'm not trying to make a financial monetary statement here. I'm just saying that you can expect God to meet you in your time of need. Look at Joseph. Faithfulness will have its reward. And then we should notice that in the blessings that are described there in verse 25 and 26, as it just kind of gets bigger and bigger, we're reminded, you know, Joseph is not long for the earth at this point. Uh, it's up to Eugene to, to bury him next week. But he just has a, a few years left. But this speaks of all that's going to happen through his descendants. So when it says, mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph. This is talking about a legacy of faith that comes from this man who knew how to trust God. And that should be incredibly encouraging to us. Not in a proud way, in a humble way. You and I should be living right now as if people who are going to be sitting in these pews when we are dead and gone could be blessed by our legacy of faith. People in your family, people who knew you and their descendants could be blessed in a legacy of faith. I, I think that's what we're meant to see here in these blessings up to the everlasting hills. So a question for you this morning. Are you living like faithfulness will have its reward? Are you seeking God in a way that expects that you're seeking will be rewarded. Sin will have its consequences. Faith will have its reward. Let's consider our third point. The king will have his praise. So we're going back here to the other extended section, the, the son that gets the most words and thinking about Judah. Reuben was disqualified. Simeon and Levi disqualified. We come to son number four, verse eight. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. A description of Judah and the tribe that will come from him. I think four things stand out here. And as we walk through the four things, you've got a lens on Judah, the, the son, the person that's right there with Jacob, and then we'll have kind of a, a zooming out uh, as we go through this prophetic word. But the first thing that stands out to us is repentance. You know, when we think about Judah, we should begin by remembering that he didn't start well. He can't be here because he's the most righteous son. Remember, he joined the other brothers in the jealous attack on Joseph in chapter 37. He was actually the one who spoke up and suggested selling Joseph for pieces of silver. So if anything, in that story, uh, Judah is, is Judas. He's the betrayer. He's sexually immoral in chapter 38. 
He doesn't do what is right by his daughter-in-law, at least initially. So we, we might wonder why Judah is not disqualified as well. But what we saw as we walked through the, the back and forth as the brothers came from Canaan in the midst of the famine to Egypt to buy grain. Remember, they're, they're meeting with the disguised Joseph who is, who is testing whether they're, they're truly repentant or not. Well, right before the climactic scene, it's Judah who speaks up. And, you know, remember, Joseph wants Benjamin to stay in Egypt. And Judah speaks up and says, if we go back to my father without Benjamin, he will die. Uh, let me stay in place of my brother. I, I offer myself as a substitute for him. What we said there is that we're seeing Judah's repentance, uh, maybe his salvation, his regeneration there, but, but surely his repentance. And brothers and sisters, let's not pass over the, the wonderful truth that God forgives the repentant. If that weren't true, then what are any of us doing here? That's a precious thing. If you have unconfessed sin in your life right now, why? Why would you not go to a God who is merciful? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God. Don't hold on to sin. Spurgeon answers the question, can a person fallen into scandalous sin be restored? In answer, he says this, when a preacher of righteousness has stood in the way of sinners, he should never again open his lips in the great congregation until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. I think it's a great way to describe Judah here. His, his repentance is as notorious as his sin. Now, from the foundation of this repentance comes a, a leadership that will define his tribe going forward. So, so first, repentance. Second, authority. We see authority here with Judah. We're, we're told of Judah that your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This is a picture of a, a, an enemy fleeing before you and you're chasing them and grabbing them from behind by the neck. In the book of Numbers, you, you may remember that 12 tribes were sent, or 12 men were sent out from each of the 12 tribes. Only two men came back and said, if we trust God, we can take the land. The other 10 were, were cowardly. They said the, the, the inhabitants of the land are too powerful for us. Who were the two men? Caleb and Joshua, right? Who were they descendants of? Judah and Joseph. We can see there particularly Caleb is the one who is wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord and brave. He has an authority, therefore, in Israel. In the book of Judges, when, when God is going to choose a tribe to go in first and attack, it's Judah that he comes to first, and they courageously go and attack the Canaanites. So in the conquest of Canaan, Judah is the leading Tribe. Again and again, we're going to see through the Old Testament the, the legacy of Judah in his courage, in his, in his bravery. That's why he's compared to a lion here. Uh, lions in the ancient Near East pictured kingship because of their fierceness and their bravery. 
We see his authority also there when it says, your father's sons shall bow down before you. But then the prophecy kind of widens out from just the character of the tribe of Judah to, to some of these specific predictions. First of all, it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him will be the obedience, not just of the the brothers, but of the peoples, the nations. This points, first of all, to the the reign of King David, who is of the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, he's, he's promised an everlasting kingship. He'll always have a descendant on the throne. So courage and bravery in battle becomes the mantle of authority for Judah and for this coming king. So we see repentance, we see Authority. Third, we see abundance. The lens pulls back even wider here to not just the the reign of a descendant of Judah, but the quality of that reign. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, whenever I come to anything having to do with growing things, I have to confess my ignorance, and I'm certainly not an expert on viticulture. But as best I understand it, if you're going to grow grapes for wine, which is precious and expensive, don't tie any animals to those vines, or you're not going to have any grapes, right? So, so what, it, what? I mean, why are we tying, is it a donkey? his foal, and then his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Well, what's going on here? Well, this is a picture of ridiculous abundance. In the kingdom of this king to come, it doesn't matter where you tie your animal because there's so many grapes. And then we get an added uh, image here. He's washed his garments in wine. So this is crazy rich Israelites here. The kingdom of this king is so abundant, the clothes are washed in wine. It's just like wash water. So repentance, authority, abundance, and then a final image, a final thing we see is beauty. That final verse there, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. That final verse is asking us to visualize a singular male descendant of Judah, a kingly figure in all his beauty. You know, these verses here about Judah, they, they tie together the whole book of Genesis. They tie together the whole Old Testament. And really, they tie together the entire Bible. The Old Testament is about God choosing a people for his redemptive plan. How is he going to to bring back the perfection that was there in Eden, that which was lost in the fall? How how is God going to do that through this people who are sometimes faithful like Joseph, but most of the time not, right? The, The story as we read it through Genesis And then through the rest of the Old Testament is largely a story of failure. I mean, along the way, we get to see the patience and the graciousness of God. All all day long, he holds out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Again and again through the prophets, he says, come back. 
come back to a place of obedience and trust and loving me. And yet, by and large, the, the, the Old Testament is a tragedy. In many ways, like the, the book of Genesis. I mean, a, a spoiler alert, but when we get to next week, there's not going to be a wonderful, climactic conclusion that brings everything together happily. That's not how it reads. Genesis is ending here on a very mixed note. But then sprinkled throughout that story of misery, despair, and tragedy, we get these little glimpses of the coming of a king. Genesis 3.15, a male descendant of Eve. Though his heel will be bruised, he will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 49 here, a descendant of Judah, will come and reign as king and, and amongst the praise of his people and the obedience of the nations will be to him. Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will arise out of Israel. 2 Samuel 7, descendant of Judah that will reign on the throne. Isaiah 25, a king on the mountain of the Lord with the peoples of the nations streaming there. What will he do? He will make for the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. If you want to read the Old Testament rightly, read it with this longing for a king. The waiting for a king. Read, read it with a sense and a feeling of incompleteness. I wonder if you notice, right there in the middle of the reading, it's, it's an odd verse. I, I puzzled over it all week. Look at verse 18. You're, the way the stanzas are written here, it may kind of looks like it's attached to Dan. It has nothing to do with what's said to Dan. It has nothing to do with what's said to Gad afterwards. Jacob just says out a prayer. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. What's that about? Well, I think you can see Jacob here in the midst of a lot of sadness that he feels. Even as he approaches death, he's saying in a sense, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. We say, well, as a believer, aren't we saved now? Uh, having trusted in God, don't we have salvation as a, as a present possession? Well, yes, we do. That's, that's the wonderful news of the gospel, is that if any of us will turn from our sins and trust in Christ, we are saved from our sins. And the Bible will, will speak of us as having uh, that salvation as a present possession. But that doesn't mean that it's also not a future reality that you and I are waiting for, at least we should be. That's what Jacob is putting into the words of a prayer here. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So the right way for us to read the Old Testament, the entire Bible, is leaning forward, waiting, and saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. If you could read the whole Testament in one sitting, which would be amazing, I'm quite sure you would get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which actually is written, it's written as a new book of Genesis. You know what Matthew 1.1 says, literally? The book of the Genesis 
the book of the Genesios, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When you read that verse, you should say, ah, that's what we've been waiting for. One who would come with authority. And then, and then when he comes on the scene and he starts to do miracles, what's his first miracle? What does he do? He takes water and he turns it into abundant, rich wine. And you say, ah, one who has come with abundance. You wouldn't read about any sin that he needed to repent of. You would read of him going to the cross to die as a substitute and a sacrifice for all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him. And you would remember his words when he came on the scene. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Believe the good news. Ah, one who came calling for repentance. And if you kept reading, you would get all the way to the end of the book, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It speaks of the end of time. We read it in the call to worship. Revelation 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? What it means there, the scroll is the Lamb's book of life, and the names that are written in there are those who will be saved eternally. And it's closed because it has to be closed unless the sins of all these people are paid for. And somebody who's going to open that scroll has to be worthy to open the scroll Any of the sons of Jacob, are they worthy? No. Are any of us worthy? No. Verse 3, and no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, and that elder was reading Genesis 49, I can assure you, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We say to ourselves, ah, here is the king come in all his beauty, in all his abundance, in all his authority. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, for you are the lion of of the tribe of Judah. Do you know him this morning, friends? Is he to you the the object of your faith? Is he to you the one to whom you gladly give your praise? That's the question, ultimately, that hangs over this text. The king will have his praise, but will you praise him with your words, with your life. Sin will have its consequences. Faithfulness will have its reward. The king will have his praise. We should conclude. Last words are lasting words. Uh, Last year I was walking through a a cemetery in my wife's hometown of Belfont, Pennsylvania. Uh, As I like to say, there are more cows there than people. It's a rural place, lots of grass and trees, a delightful place to walk through a a cemetery on a sunny day. 
As I did so, I was, I was just looking at the headstones. I was comparing them. There were some different things that stood out and struck me. You know, some of the, the headstones are gigantic, kind of testifying to the wealth of the person uh, when they were alive. But I, it struck me that a lot of those biggest headstones had cracked in half, uh, kind of a, a, an ironic testament to the fact that our efforts at self-preservation come to an end. Anyway, if you look at some of the names, you would see names that are common to that part of Pennsylvania. About halfway through, as I'm walking through, just reflecting on what the Lord wanted to teach me that day, I saw it. A big headstone for a husband and a wife, and it just said Collins. And I thought to myself, that's right. That's where I'm headed. Not too distant future from now, that's where I'll be. And friends, that's where you'll be too. It's not very long that we have here. We're not going to be buried in the cave of Machpelah like Jacob, like Joseph. Will you be remembered? What will be your legacy? I don't even know if your last words or my last words will be written down or will be in any way memorable or inspiring to anyone. Maybe. Some people had their last words, so to speak, put on their headstone. I saw things like, blessed is him who dies in the Lord. God has been good to me. I I thought of uh, William Carey's famous epitaph, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. What are you going to put? What would you put? I think this morning we can look at verse 18 and think, I don't think we can do anything better than that. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Let's pray. Father, you've been so good to us in so many ways. As we think upon the gospel and the way You purposed to save us through the coming of your son. And as we look forward to his second coming and the return of the king, we pray this morning that you would give us hearts full of faith, full of joy, and full of love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.